Father in heaven, we ask now that you will send your spirit. You will give us sharp minds to understand reality and what your purpose for us is in our generation. Your purpose is eternal. We are not. Until you come again, that is. Help us to know what you would have us do in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before Israel was to enter the land of Canaan, God's servant Moses gave them some final counsel and instruction, which we have today in the form of the book we call Deuteronomy. Now, in particular, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find these words. Verse 1, these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me, that's Moses, to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Now, I want to make sure we understand exactly what this passage is saying to us. So let's, let's pause a moment and think about this. So there is a people who have been named for their ancestor Israel. They're the children of Israel. And they have been given certain commands and decrees and laws. And these commands and decrees and laws have come from one named Yahweh, or at least something close to that. We don't know exactly what it was, but that was the name of God as he revealed himself to the children of Israel. And whenever you're reading in your Old Testament and it comes along and it says, The Lord, but you see Lord in all capital letters, that means it's actually God's name. It's something like Yahweh. So, so this one God named Yahweh is identifying himself to Israel as your God, as their God. And this one, Yahweh, has directed Moses to teach these laws to the people so that they and their children and their children's children will fear Yahweh their God by keeping his decrees and commands. Why? Well, that comes at the very end. He says, so that you might enjoy long life. And then immediately in verse 3, he kind of reiterates the same thing. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. So now we have added the detail that Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, has promised to them a land of blessing. But I want to ask you here, as I read these first three verses, did you notice the generational language? It says it is for you and for your children and for your children's children, all because of a promise God made to your ancestors. It's a lot of generations. And based on this language, it doesn't seem a stretch to realize that this God, Yahweh, who, by the way, apparently was and is and is to come, because how can he be the God of the ancestors, the God of them, and the God of their children's children if he is not the God who was and is and is to come? This God, Yahweh, desires to do a generational work 
through the children of Israel. But in order for blessing to be upon Israel, it is essential that Israel maintain faithfulness to Yahweh, not just in this generation, but faithfulness through the generations. And so that they can maintain that faithfulness, this God, Yahweh, has directed three things. The first is that the ones who are entering the land must observe Yahweh's commands, His decrees, and His laws. Now we'll get to the second and the third directives in this passage in a moment. But before we do, I want to stop and reflect upon what, would, what is it that would incline these children of Israel to in fact follow this directive to observe the commands of Yahweh. Now here's the thing. Whenever we approach a subject like this, we do it as the people we are. We are enlightenment or post-enlightenment people, and that is our perspective. And as a result of that, we might be inclined to posit a couple various reasons why Israel might follow these commands. One of those reasons is we will follow them because they make sense to us. I mean, that's how we rational people think, right? Or we will follow them because we agree with them. Or we will follow them because they are our tradition. Or we will follow them because we're afraid of being punished if we don't. It's kind of how our minds work sometimes, isn't it? And perhaps these are decent answers and, and potentially true as well. Yet, are these answers strong enough to maintain generational faithfulness. Well, let me ask you. So if we're only following these decrees because we follow them because they make sense to us, what happens if they don't make sense to the next generation? What happens if my children's children no longer agree with these? What if, somewhere down the line, an outside tradition comes in and the traditions are changed? Or what if I decide there really isn't any immediate punishment for disobedience? What happens then? I want to suggest to you that we know exactly what happens then. What happens is what has been happening in Europe and Australia and Canada and the United States and a lot of other parts of the world over the last 60 years. Without a generational conviction about faith, the faith that was once hardwired default is no longer normal and isn't even really welcome or acceptable in the public sphere anymore. That's what happens when the generational argument is based on whether I think it makes sense or whether I agree with it. Now, this is not to suggest that everything that passed for Christianity in the generations past in these places that I've named was, in fact, healthy and good. We know for a fact sometimes it wasn't. But rather, I mention this to make the point that Christian faith can die out quite fast when it is no longer being passed from one generation to the next. So back to the context of our text today. This God, Yahweh, has directed the people to obey His commands, His decrees, and His laws. Now, if you are Israel, what is the absolute fundamental key reality that you must embrace 
in order for you to have any inclination at all to follow Yahweh's commands. Well, I'm glad you asked that because the second directive to Israel is what verses 4 and 5 are about. Verse 4, and this will be very familiar to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You see, at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is this. You either believe that Yahweh is God and therefore you will love him with all you have and all you are or you don't believe that and you won't do that. You see, this confession makes all the difference in the world. For you see, if you truly believe this, that there is a God named Yahweh, and you are to love him with all that you are, and that this truly is the most important issue in your life, if this is true for you, then it changes everything about your life. Jesus knew this to be true. That's why this happened. Matthew 22, verse 35 one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. All right. So why have I spent all this time getting us to this point? Well, our purpose has been to get us to the third directive that Yahweh gives to the people in this passage. And then from there, to bridge over to talk about the Building Boldly for Jesus project. Now, you have any idea how I'm going to get there yet? You might in a minute. You might start seeing it if we read more of Deuteronomy 6. Remember, I said there were three directives that Yahweh, the God of Israel, gives. The first is that the children of Israel were to keep the commands and the laws and the decrees. The second was that they were to love the Lord their God with everything. And why are they to do that? Well, here's the reasons. Because Yahweh is real. Because Yahweh is their God. And because Yahweh is their deliverer and their promise maker and their promise keeper. He delivered them from Egypt. He's taking them to the land of promise, and he only wants the best for the people, and ultimately the best not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Because through Jesus, who is going to come as a descendant of Israel, God is about to bring about an even greater promise deliverance than just the deliverance of one people out of bondage in Egypt. So because all of this is true, the people are directed to love the Lord and keep his commands. But here's the deal. The reality of Yahweh is eternal. And the purposes of Yahweh are not purposes that can be established and fulfilled in a single generation of humans. The initial promise is given to the ancestors, specifically to Abraham, and then later to Isaac, and, and passed on to Jacob, whom this God Yahweh will rename Israel. And then as a partial fulfillment of this greater promise that is made to Abraham, 
This same God delivers an even later generation out of bondage in Egypt. But the people that the Lord delivered out of bondage had not grown up worshiping and trusting in Yahweh. And as it turned out, it was practically impossible to rewire them to believe, even after the Lord had done so much for them. And so the fulfillment of the promise did not come to the generation that came out of Egypt. They fell in the wilderness. But despite their failure, this God, Yahweh, was able to take their children into the land of Canaan. Yet even this alone was not the ultimate fulfillment of the Abraham promise. There was so much more and so many more generations to come. So based on this reality of the eternity of God's purpose, but the mortality of God's people, what must happen in order that the short-term purpose of God might be remembered and the long-term purpose of God must be fulfilled? The purpose is eternal. We're not yet. Well, that then brings in the third directive that this God, Yahweh, gives. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, do everything you need to do to make sure you do not forget these things and do everything you need to do to pass these things on to your children. And at this point, do everything you need to do to pass this faith on to your children is the point upon which I want to key for the rest of our time and the point at which we will bridge to the Building Boldly for Jesus project. The Lord is not speaking idly when He directs us to impress the faith upon our children. For He knows that it is far easier for our children to remain faithful all their lives if they are hardwired to believe than it is for them to become faithful in life if doing so requires that they be rewired to believe. And for the record, the Lord is not the only one who knows this is true. I call your attention to these words spoken by Nicholas Humphrey, an eminent English psychologist from a now somewhat famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, speech that he gave 20 years ago in Oxford, England on February 21, 1997. Our context for these words is the command of Yahweh to impress faith in Yahweh and His commands upon our children. Here's Humphrey's words. Children, I'll argue, have a human right not to have their minds crippled by exposure to other people's bad ideas, no matter who these other people are. Parents, correspondingly, 
have no God-given license to enculturate their children in whatever ways they personally choose. No right to limit the horizons of their children's knowledge, to bring them up in an atmosphere of dogma and superstition, or to insist they follow the straight and narrow paths of their own faith. In short, children have a right not to have their minds addled by nonsense. And we as a society have a duty to protect them from it. So we should no more allow parents to teach their children to believe, for example, in the literal truth of the Bible, or that the planets rule their lives, then we should allow parents to knock their children's teeth out or lock them in a dungeon. Now, in fairness, it is an extreme view. However, he is not an outcast. He is still highly regarded as an eminent psychologist. So why would Humphrey say such a thing? Well, because he doesn't believe in God. It's rather simple, really. And as a non-believer, and a rather evangelistic non-believer at that, he has come to realize that it is, such, it is so much more difficult to rewire a hardwire believer in order to make him a faithful atheist. Therefore, he is suggesting, since he is certain of his view of truth, Children should absolutely be protected from abusive parental religious indoctrination that would, in his view, skew them for the rest of their lives. But now you might assume from this that, that Humphrey buys into the notion that children should not be given values at all and should be allowed to develop them. Well, that's actually not the case. He goes on, that's the negative side of what I want to say, but there will be a positive side as well. If children have a right to be protected from false ideas, they have, too, a right to be suckered in the truth. And we as a society have a duty to provide it. Therefore, we should feel as much obliged to pass on to our children the best scientific and philosophical understanding of the natural world to teach, for example, the truths of evolution and cosmology or the methods of rational analysis, as we already feel obliged to feed and shelter them. So get a, get a grip on his idea here. In his mind, for you to pass your faith to your child is the same as knocking their teeth out and locking them in the dungeon, but for him to pass on his scientific views is the same as nurture. I hope you catch and appreciate the irony. According to Humphrey, your children need to be protected from the hardwiring of your crippling religious fanaticism, but desperately need the hardwiring of Humphrey's so-called scientific truth. He's not against hardwiring. He's just against you doing it. You see, on this point, Humphrey and the Lord actually agree. Every effort should be made to impress truth upon the young. They agree. But where Humphrey and the Lord disagree is the definition of truth. So do you know the definition of truth? Certainly with this question, I don't mean a complete understanding of all things, but rather something a bit more simple. Something I think even Humphrey would agree is one of the deepest fundamental questions of all. Does the God of the Bible exist or not? 
Humphrey would answer, absolutely not. And because Humphrey, as a psychologist, knows that it is easier to hardwire a child to agree with him than it is to rewire an adult to agree with him, he has realized that if he wants to build a world where no one believes in God, then he needs a world where no children are taught to believe. And I suppose if the existence of God really was little more than a hypothetical notion with potentially an equal chance that he does or doesn't exist, or if faith and non-faith, or truth and non-truth, really was entirely a personal matter, such as, well, that may be truth for you, but it's not truth for me. If truth is entirely a personal matter, then, then maybe Humphreys has a point. But here's the thing. That's not how it is. You see, the God of the Bible does exist. And He has revealed Himself to His people through the generations by means of angels, by means of the Holy Spirit, by means of the Old Testament, by means of the New Testament, and most perfectly and clearly through Jesus Christ. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see, the truth cannot just be the truth for me because the truth of Jesus is a truth for the whole world. And therefore, I believe we cannot just stand by and miss the prime opportunity we have to hardwire our children into this truth. Don't let the world make you ashamed on this point. Not only is it okay, it is a command from God that we hardwire faith into our children. Our attitude towards truth as it relates to our children must be this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Cephas is the other name for Peter who just told us, we didn't make this stuff up, we saw him. All of which brings us at last to the direct connection with building boldly for Jesus. 
If you truly believe in the God of Israel, if you truly believe in Jesus, then just like Paul, what you have received, you must pass on to others. And the most important audience to which you must pass your truths is to your children, to our children. It is not wrong to hardwire children's minds to truth. Even the eminent Dr. Humphrey would agree with me on this point. He would disagree on what truth is, but he would agree on the point. But if we truly believe what we claim to believe, then hardwiring truth into our children is the most important work we will ever do. Because it is the only work that survives our mortality and carries the purpose of God to eternity. One more quote from Dr. Humphrey. All sects, which he would consider us, that are serious about their own survival do indeed make every attempt to flood the child's mind with their own propaganda. Now, please tell me that this atheist doctor isn't wiser in the ways of faith transmission than we are. He knows that's the only way. He knows that's the only chance. Now, of course, the key is family. But the church must be a valued and essential resource for all our families. My heart is a little heavy today. No, it's a lot heavy. We all know what we've been through as a community here with the recent loss of Rob Fulbright and the hole that's left in one of our families. Well, as I arrived home last night, I received a phone call from my son Nathan who is attending the university at Andrews University in Michigan. And he said, I just heard that Reg Matson had died. Now, most of you don't know him, but he is a very dear friend of our family. Father of six. His wife, Carrie, traveled to be with Alicia at the birth of all four of our children kind of get a little nervous whenever she shows up. <laughs> but this is how close these people are and how they've invested in us. He was, he was traveling home yesterday in his pickup truck on the interstate and somehow was involved in an accident with two semi-trucks. And his life was taken. His youngest is a junior, maybe a senior in academy, so his kids are older. But let me tell you what I remember about Reg. You see, he was a part of the church that I was assigned to when I was at the seminary. And I remember Reg and Carrie sitting in church with their kids. At the time, there were just four of them. 
And I remember every Sabbath you could count on them being right there. Now, yes, they were investing in their kids at home, but they also understood the role of the church. And they brought them, and they were with them every week. And they used to sit right over here. And I always remembered at the end of the service, Kelsey, the youngest at the time, three or four, she's probably 28, 29 now, would fall asleep in her dad's arms. And every week at the end of the church, he would walk out carrying his daughter shaking hands. They invested. They made themselves a part. And because of that, to this day, if you go to this church, you won't just see them there. You'll see a whole line of their extended family there now because they're passing the faith to the generations. You'll see grandkids now where the little Matsons used to sit. My heart is heavy. Alicia left this morning to fly up to be with the family. But I see them as a great example of exactly what the Lord is talking about here. Because he may be gone, but his influence is not because he passed his faith and now the generations are passing it. I believe this is something that God has done in this church and that God continues to desire to do in this church. He is passing the faith through the generations. We talked last Sabbath about the faithful ones 50 years ago who banded together to give us this room in which we are right now. Whether the lights stay on or not, we don't know. <laughs> but I suppose if the wiring's that old, you've got to expect something, right? Who faithfully invested in the generations. The reason for the new children's ministry wing that we are going to build is so that this church can be even more effective at hardwiring faith into the minds of our children so that the world and its deceitful scheming will not be able to rewire them for destruction. We want to make it hard for the world to steal our kids. And we are investing as a community in helping the families of this church to make that reality. Because here's the truth. I want to see the hands of all the perfect parents out there. Only mine should be raising their hands right now. There we go. We need help, don't we? And that's what the church is here to do. Help you hardwire faith into your children. That's why we ask for volunteers for Sabbath schools. That's why it's important that it isn't just parents in there, because they need help. They need some of you who are experienced and who know this well to come and make a next generational investment in maybe they'd be grandchildren to you, but to make that investment to hardwire and to help those parents. It is much easier to hardwire faith now 
than it is to rewire faith later. It really is just that simple. What we want is generational faithfulness. And even the atheists know there is no more important investment we could make than that. So what does it come down to? Well, we talked a little bit about the project, and you're going to see more and more about it as we go forward. But just like when you buy a house, you know you have to have that down payment, and that secures your loan. And then after you make that down payment, you've got to make your payments on the loan. Well, we've got those two realities. Now, if you weren't here last Sabbath and you missed the message last week, I want to ask you to go onto the church website and hear that message because you're going to get some details about this project I can't give you today. But I want you to hear that message and the one this Sabbath and each of the ones building up to May 13. Make a point to be here May 13. This is our pledge day when we together, all of us, are going, to be, are going to pledge to be a part of this project. Now, right now, we need the one-time upfront gifts. And I mentioned to you before that financial leaders within this community have already set the pace on this project. We've received over $750,000 in commitment from just three families in this community. Now, maybe you can't put all those zeros on there, but you can put some of them. And it's one thing to be able to do that. It's another thing to love your brothers and sisters and love the children of this place enough to actually go ahead and do it. We need the one-time gifts now as we're building up. And we have a special envelope in the, in the pews in front of you. I invite you to take one there. It's in where the regular tithe envelopes are. Take one with you. Take it home. And let this be the reminder, your challenge to that one-time gift. And then on May 13, we're going to commit ourselves together to a monthly pledge. Now, we have a website, www.buildingboldlyforjesus.org. You can go there. You'll see a countdown clock counting down to May 13, the big day coming up. And you're also going to see some other content get added to it as we go along. There'll be some pictures there this time, and, and then you'll see more after that. But on May 13, you'll be able to sit where you are right now and take out your handheld device and go to that spot and make your pledge commitment right there. Or you can do it other ways if you prefer. But the point is, there is no more important investment that we could make for the generational health of God's kingdom than the investment that hardwires the faith into our kids. I praise God for every adult that comes to the faith. I praise Him even more for every child that never has to go away and come back. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God 
as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. That's the future I want to see. We, of course, pray that the Lord comes even before we're done. But if he doesn't, I want those kids who stood right here this morning to grow up to be exactly what they said they could be. We will build boldly for Jesus, and this vision will come true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, touch our hearts. Help us to see there is no, important work, no more important work we could do than to hardwire faith in you into our children. There is a world that wants to hardwire them to a different approach. But Lord, we pray the truth about you will win in their lives. Lord, complete your generational work through us. And may we be faithful in this project of our generation. In Jesus' name, amen.